The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... The crime of identity theft can strike anyone, regardless of age or socioeconomic status. ACB Reports for September 2009 brings you simple tips on becoming a smaller target for identity thieves. But first, we join Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, for an update on quiet car and pedestrian safety issues. A lot has happened over the last year with the initiatives that ACB has undertaken to seek to increase the safety of independent travel when talking about quiet vehicles, hybrid or electric vehicles and the dangers that they pose to us and other pedestrians. There's been a whole discussion on hybrid and electric vehicles that has elevated to the Department of Transportation. Last year, a piece of legislation was introduced called the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act of 2008. It was introduced by Congressman Adolphus Towns of New York, and the lead Republican co-sponsor was Cliff Stearns of Florida. This bill sought to make the Department of Transportation research the problem that there is very little sound emitted from these hybrid or electric vehicles when they are traveling at speeds of 30 miles an hour or less. And then collaborate with the blindness community and the orientation and mobility field, along with industry, to identify potential solutions and report back to Congress, and then ultimately have the authority to implement those solutions through regulation. In essence, to establish a minimum sound emission standard. The bill did not pass last year, and it was reintroduced in January of this year as H.R. 734, the same bill title, the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act of 2009. And I am ecstatic to report to you that as of today, this piece of legislation in the House of Representatives has 124 co-sponsors. A great deal of the visibility that this bill has received through co-sponsors is directly attributable to the membership of the American Council of the Blind. At our legislative seminar in Washington back in February, there were roughly 60 co-sponsors at that point, which was already a, a pretty high number given the fact that the bill had been out for less than a month. We're now sitting at 124, and we have a Senate companion bill that has been introduced, S841, by Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts. But notables such as Senator Kennedy, Senator Bayh of Indiana, and other notable high-profile senators have signed on as sponsors. Let me talk to you a little bit about our discussions with the Department of Transportation, because I view this process... And the end game, ultimately the end game here for us, is coming upon a minimum sound emission standard that can be implemented through regulation by the Department of Transportation. We've approached this from uh, two areas. Number one, obviously, is the legislation. But number two is through the engagement with the federal government in this topic. Starting last June, 
the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, also known as NHTSA, held a day-long meeting in Washington, D.C. to talk about the dangers that hybrid and electric vehicles pose to the blindness community. And that was a big deal because you don't often get a federal agency to conduct a day-long public meeting on a topic quite that narrow. And you should have seen the amount of people that were there. Um, obviously, there were a lot of bureaucrats there because that's what bureaucrats do. They go to meetings. The industry was represented through the Society of Automotive Engineers. They are the auto manufacturers. Toyota, General Motors, Honda were all represented. The orientation and mobility community was represented. The academic community who had begun looking at this problem was represented. And ultimately, the blindness community was represented. Representatives from the American Council of the Blind, the American Foundation for the Blind, and the National Federation of the Blind all presented. This is an issue that the blindness community is united on. That doesn't happen a lot. However, I'm, I am happy to report that this sort of thing has begun to happen with greater frequency over the last year or two, which is good because it makes these sorts of issues more manageable when we're all at least singing from the same hymnal. The purpose of that particular meeting was to talk about the various challenges that blind pedestrians face in traversing roadways, sidewalks, residential areas, parking lots, things of that nature, due to the lack of sound emitted from these vehicles. And to begin a dialogue about what the various fields represented at this meeting could do to try and look at this problem. At the end of the day, I think everybody thought that it was a productive meeting. And the Department of Transportation said, we'll get back to you. We've collected a lot of information from this meeting. And they did about 10 months later. And here's why. Here's why they got back to us. Because we discovered a hidden piece of language in the omnibus bill that was passed in March of this year. The omnibus is uh, a neat little vehicle for Congress to utilize when they can't get the business of the nation done on time and fund federal agencies. Tucked away in this rather humongous piece of legislation was essentially a couple of lines funding the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration to study the dangers that hybrid vehicles pose to individuals who are blind or visually impaired. What was really interesting is that no one knows how it got there. So this is March. The language called for the study to be completed by June of 2009. Not providing a lot of time. So I was able to have a meeting with Congressman Towns to talk to him about this language to try and figure out what this really meant and uh, my feeling that the government really had not moved off the dime in moving forward with any of the information that was conveyed during the public meeting last year. And so he said, you're right. Let's have a meeting in my office. I'll get the NHTSA folks over here. We'll get NFB in here, and we'll get uh, the Society of Automotive Engineers in here. So we did. We had this big meeting to talk about the language, and uh, the Department of Transportation said that they were working on a research plan, which was good, and that they would be able to share that proposed plan with us within the next couple of weeks. About a month later... 
they reached out to us, and we had a day-long meeting on tax day, as a matter of fact, April 15th, to talk about the research plan. This is a very comprehensive research plan that entails, I would say, seven to eight months' worth of research, ranging from how individuals who are blind or visually impaired travel independently, the cues that we use, the challenges that we incur with ambient noise, acoustics, things of that nature, and ultimately the sound emission of various brands of hybrid vehicles in comparison to their internal combustion engine counterparts. This research plan relies heavily upon the data that's already been collected and is being collected by the Society of Automotive Engineers. It makes a lot of sense. What I find interesting is that the auto manufacturers have taken a far more proactive approach in this whole issue than the government has. Industry has to know that ultimately it will be regulated on this particular issue. Having said that, the Society of Automotive Engineers have been excellent to deal with. They seem to get the problem. And about a month ago, the DOT and SAE, along with NFB and ACB, took all of these sighted people out and put blindfolds on them, handed them canes, and they walked around downtown Baltimore. Over by construction sites, high traffic areas, so that they could get a firsthand representation of what it's like not to be able to see, but to be expected to utilize your hearing to cross streets safely and maneuver in the environment. There were some aha moments that came from that, from a lot of these folks. It's really interesting because these folks aren't policy people necessarily. They're not classic policy folks. These are folks that deal with ISO standards and ANSI standards and things of that nature. But first and foremost, these people are engineers. So they want to try and fix the problem. They're not about obfuscating, if you will, which their counterparts in governmental affairs like to try and do. They released their final research plan just last month. It calls for a final report and recommendations to be delivered by early January. We will see how they do in meeting that deadline. But what I can tell you is that anything short of a proposal that would seek to establish a minimum sound emission standard for all 50 states, a uniform standard, anything less than that is unacceptable to us. And here's why. If you have individual states going after different sound emission standards, you're not solving the problem. What you're doing is further confusing the issue. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the automotive industry can be expected to deal with 50 different or even eight different sound emission standards for their hybrid vehicles. And in fact, I would argue that you're putting more blind and visually impaired individuals at danger. Because if they come from Maryland where there's one sound emission standard and they come to Michigan where there's a completely different standard, that's not safe. So what we want across the blindness community is a good, tried and true standard. These issues obviously aren't going to be solved overnight, but the sufficient amount of impetus has been put behind this through Congressman Towns' office, through Senator Kennedy's office, and by ACB and NFB. 
all working together for the same end game. Eric Bridges was recorded during the legislative update at the 48th annual convention of the American Council of the Blind in Orlando, Florida. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Later during that busy convention week, attendees learned about the very serious and much too common crime of identity theft. ACB Secretary Marlena Lieberg introduced the speakers. This is a topic that is very timely, unfortunate, and yet it's something we all need to know about, and I think certainly especially those of us who are blind need to have a good understanding of protecting yourself against identity theft. It's real, it's here, and we need to know how to protect ourselves. Teresa Rohnbaum is the identity theft victim advocate in the office of the Attorney General here in Orlando, Florida. And Holly Sammons is the director of marketing and relations for the uh, Better Business Bureau of Central Florida, located here in Orlando. And they're going to talk with us about protecting ourselves against identity theft. Ladies. I am a victim advocate of identity theft with the Florida Attorney General's office. Many individuals believe that identity theft is strictly credit card fraud or banking account information. And I will tell you from one-on-one -on -one calls and conversations with individuals, it doesn't matter if it's a child, an adult, you could have good credit, you could have no credit at all, and you could still be impacted and a victim of this crime. Unfortunately, in statistics of 2008, the Federal Trade Commission ranks this as one of their top reported complainted categories with the FTC. And identity theft, a lot of times victims are unaware that they are even a victim until it actually occurs or when they pull their credit reports. How many of you have ever been a victim of identity theft? A little less than a half of the room, and those of you that are out there, if you have not contacted your local law enforcement agency or someone in your state government or community, you should do so if you have yet to resolve your issues. A lot of times identity theft is considered civil, and that is incorrect. Identity theft is a crime, and it is a criminal offense. Be it your family member, a friend, someone that may help take care of your home or your dogs or your yard, may get into your mail. That is still a criminal offense, no matter if you know the individual or not. You did not give them the authorization to use your personal identifiers, and law enforcement needs to be contacted. Different types of identity theft that I want to run through really quick today, and, and the list goes on and on. But typically, like I said, individuals think it's only a banking or out-of-pocket loss, and that is not true. For those of you in the room, you need to realize how important it is to obtain some sort of privacy to your personal information, especially your social security numbers. These numbers nowadays are actually being sold off by the millions. One social is never really truly verified with your date of birth or who you are. So a social for a five-year-old could be used to obtain credit. Your social could be sold off to illegal immigrants or for terrorist activity. 
And that is what we're seeing as the extreme cases of identity theft. Yes, I have a lot of driver's license fraud uh, where people are actually being arrested just driving on vacation. They get pulled over and then they find out there's a warrant for their arrest in another state because someone used their information for driver's license issues. But we can go as extreme as medical identity theft along with social security fraud. Medical identity theft, just a brief definition of that, could go from someone using your social and identifiers to obtain health insurance in your name to actually checking themselves into hospitals, you obtaining the medical bills and responsibilities, but unfortunately the extreme harm to that is that your medical records are forever altered because there are so many HIPAA laws and so many things that you have to go through in regards to clearing up actually your own medical record because someone used your social security number in regards to any type of medical bills, prescriptions, emergency room visits, you name it, I've had all kinds of cases that have come through my office. In regards to what you should do if you are a victim of identity theft, and many of you raised your hand, hopefully you've taken the steps to clear your credit. One being placing fraud alerts on your credit reports. There are different types of fraud alerts. For those of you that are not familiar, there is the typical 90-day fraud alert that we ask everyone to do if you suspect that you're a victim. Maybe you've lost your wallet. God forbid here at the convention this week, maybe you left your wallet somewhere and you thought, you know what, just to be on the safe side, let me call and cancel my credit cards, contact the credit bureaus. That would be a temporary 90-day fraud alert. Unfortunately, the thieves are very smart these days and they will actually sit on your information and wait 90 days because they know that you've probably placed a temporary fraud alert. So I suggest you do that, but you also mark on your calendar when the 90 days is up and possibly doing a seven-year fraud alert. If you know for a fact that you're a victim of identity theft, I would suggest a more extreme lock on your personal information, which is called a security freeze. That is a big difference from a fraud alert. A security freeze will actually even lock you out. So for those of you that are shopaholics, that might be a good idea, right? Lock yourself out. You know, you think twice about, do I really want that 15% off if I open up that credit card today? You won't be able to do that any longer. But individuals that actually have your social security number, the security freeze will lock them out because you're provided a PIN number when you request that through the credit bureaus. Each state has a different law established to the security freeze. In Florida, if you're over the age of 65, or you're a victim of identity theft with a documented police report of identity theft, the $10 fee is waived. $10 fee being with Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Those $30, that can add up to temporarily lift it. If you do want to open up a credit card or maybe refinance your house, you would have to then temporarily lift it and contact those credit bureaus with another $30. So it's very important you go through the correct steps and find out what your state law is pertaining to your freeze. You also want to close out your accounts, anything that's been compromised or that you may see in your credit files. Also, credit files sometimes lead us to the suspects. If you have a credit report that has a different address in another state, that's clue number one that that may be a potential lead to a suspect. If there's a different name on your credit report that's maybe not a middle initial that went from an M to an N, which can be a typing error with the credit bureau, that could be a lead to a suspect. So don't close out the accounts, 
Look at your files and think, oh, I'm done. Look at all sections of your credit files to make certain that no one has compromised your identity and is actually paying the bills. Many thieves want your credit, so they will actually continue to pay bills. So you are never aware until the debt collectors contact you maybe years down the road. You also want to file a police report in your jurisdiction where you live. If you get hassled with local law enforcement, which a lot of my victims do because that's kind of looked upon as a civil matter. Look into your state law regarding identity theft and find out what your rights are as a victim of identity theft. In Florida, we allow people to request a police report where they live or any location of where the crime occurred. You don't have to go to all states, maybe where your credit card was used. You go right to your local jurisdiction or in any area where the crime took place. It's very important to have documented law enforcement report. You also would need to contact the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC has wonderful website information for those of you that are internet savvy. They have a victim kit. The Florida Attorney General's Office also has a victim kit. I don't want you all to feel paranoid, but I would say identity theft is on the rise. It's an epidemic. There is no way for us to actually prevent it from happening, but you can take precautionary measures, especially when you're away from home. Keep your purses and wallets very close to you. My main suggestion to most people is it can harm any of us. I say carry cash and use cash the way we used to back in the old days. Credit cards can be skimmed. Banking cards can be skimmed. Writing checks to individuals can be harmful because your checking account number and your routing number is basically handed over to whoever you're mailing a bill to. Next um, up, Holly Salmons is going to talk to you about prevention. We are going to talk briefly about tools and ways to prevent identity theft. Educating yourself and preventing identity theft is really the best that any of us can do, to be aware and to be vigilant. Um, I myself, a few months ago, was a victim of identity theft in the form of my debit card was skimmed. It was skimmed at a restaurant, which is what I tracked it back to. And within 30 minutes, you know, I was barely in my car and buckled in before someone had used my credit card number to buy $700 worth of gift cards at a Walmart 200 miles away from here. So had I not been monitoring my accounts online, I would have not caught it quickly. Um, I had to file a police report. I had to contact my bank. And eventually I was refunded. But this is what we do for a living, and we can fall victim. So first of all, I'd like to say when you receive statements in the mail, credit card applications, you know, junk mail that's asking for you to apply for something, apply for anything. If that's not something that you're interested in, keep it in a safe place, keep it in a bag, keep it in a basket, and shred that stuff regularly. There is no reason to throw that opportunity in the trash for someone to pick through and to take advantage of the opportunity in your name. Securing your personal documents at home. If you have um, a dog sitter or if you have someone coming in to clean your home or um, perhaps childcare, anyone who comes into your home, 
that is not a part of, let's say, your immediate family or your spouse or your children, it is always a good idea to secure your personal documents, okay? Personal ID cards, passports, uh, birth certificates, things like that. Keep it in a lockbox. Keep it in a fire and waterproof, keyed safe, and keep it in your home. You can never be too careful with those sort of documents. Your social security card. I would ask for a show of hands. Who has their social security card in your wallet? But most of you aren't going to be truthful. Okay, I see some hands going up. So some people are saying very honestly that they have their social security card on them. What I'm telling you today is it is a security blanket that is held over from 30, 40, 50 years ago that we should always keep our social security card on our person. It is absolutely not necessary. If you know that you are heading for something that may require social, whether you're buying a home, whether you're going to a new doctor's office, something of that sort, something major, not going to the grocery store, not going to the mall, or you know, living your everyday life, keep that card at home in your safe place. If your Medicaid, Medicare card, your insurance card, your uh, military ID, if it bears your social security number, in some cases, your state may tell you you don't have an option, but it does not hurt to ask. It doesn't hurt to ask your insurance company or the agency issuing that card to give you an alternate ID number. Also, like I said, monitor your bank and your credit transactions. Keep an eye on what is appearing on your statements. Did you make those charges? It may be somewhere that you frequent but did you make that particular charge? One thing may appear out of place and you, you brush it off and think, well, I probably did that. And someone could literally nickel and dime you into a large sum of money. It may not be $700 like I had, but it could end up being quite a lot of money. If you receive an email that contains correspondence from your bank, PayPal, credit card, etc., asking that you verify your information. Here's a fill line. Give us your account number and your PIN number so that we can verify your account. Warning, warning, Will Robbins. That is never going to happen. Your bank, PayPal, your credit card company, they are never going to contact you in that manner. So do not complete that form. Do not give that information online. If you're using um, a computer in a public area, whether it be a library or a kiosk, perhaps um, at a civic center, or even a family or friend's computer, be very careful about what information you're accessing. Any username and passwords that you enter on a computer that's not your own, you cannot be sure that that hasn't been saved into that system. So be very careful when and where you access information online. Keep an eye on your mailbox. Visit your mailbox regularly, and if you can't because you're on vacation, have a friend or a trusted neighbor do that. Do not let your mail pile up in your mailbox. The easiest way to access someone's identity would be to walk up to the mailbox, open it up, take it out. I can get credit card statements, bank statements, you name it. It may all be there. 
So consider that like leaving your purse or your wallet wide open for a stranger. Keep that mailbox empty. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.